Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Jim Cor. Jim Cor is on the line. Say hello. Jim, how are you doing? All right, David. It's great to hear your voice, but there is a new world order being created in Davos, and I would like you to reveal yourself as the lizard you are, the lizard of Docky Town. You have revealed yourself as one of the masters of the universe. The cores have known about you all along. And uh, we'd like you to admit that you are, in fact, a lizard. Jim, it's a pleasure. <laughs> That's brilliant. OK, I've got to fly. You're extremely sleazy. <laughs> a completely scurrilous accusation, of course, by Jim Corr there against this week's special guest. But as you can hear, David McWilliams, you know what? He laughed it off with ease. And there's a lot of laughter in this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Yes, we talk about some of the weighty issues of our time, like housing, inflation, social inequality, and David's expert opinion on those and more. But he also tells me some great stories from his time at Davos, why he fell in love with economics in the first place all those years ago. And he takes a few calls as well from the likes of uh, Leo Varadkar, Eddie Hobbs, and even his uh, podcast competitor, Blind Boy Boat Club. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Then what's happening in Europe is we have this, what, what you could call Putinflation. Inflation mm. that comes from... <laughs> hey! There's the first one. There's I love it. Yeah, it's inflation that it's comes a David from... McWilliamsism. Yeah, it's a... I would be so chuffed if a, an economic term was named after me. Exactly. A Rosenstock market. A Rosenstock market. <laughs> He's done it again. Oh, Bang. It's, it's easy. just easy it's... for you. And what was beautiful was Rupert had never been said no to. Mm. And the Swiss guys had never said yes to anybody who didn't have a badge. So it, was a, it was a standoff <laughs> yeah. until there was a kerfuffle and Rupert Murdoch's face was hilarious. Like yeah. he just, It was like one of those robots that doesn't comprehend. <laughs> yeah. I've never, ever not been let in somewhere before. To actually create companies, I think, is an incredibly courageous act. Mm -hmm. And it's actually like coming out in a way because mm. you're self-expression. You're saying, yeah. this is me. Mm. I'm going mm. to back mm. myself. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you're a good footballer. You have a dirty, filthy tackle on you as well. Very filthy. You've got to be filthy. Filthy. <laughs> Tony Fenton. I remember right, Tony Fenton. We played. Watch, watch out for McWilliams. He's got a filthy tackle. <laughs> and I mean, what about a soccer? Hey, dude, stop cracking the jokes. <laughs> My full chat with economist David McWilliams coming up very shortly. And once you've had a listen, make sure to check out the lineup for the Dorky Book Festival at which David and his wife are behind. It's a brilliant event with a cracking lineup of guests. It's a really lovely part of the world as well, as you know. You'll find all the details at dockybookfestival.org. Dockybookfestival.org. So before we start that sit-down with David, let's look across the pond and to the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, Boris Johnson. Good old Bojo. It turns out that he was at the Downing Street party after all, but that he didn't realise it was a party. Hmm. You know that when that happens to you. Uh, you know, right in the middle of the big COVID restrictions that his government introduced as well? Yeah, that time. And as you might expect, this doesn't change anything in Boris's point of view. Hello, well, nothing to see here, my friends. Let's move along. Let's get the job done. Let's continue to concentrate on things that are happening over there while you don't look at things that are happening over here because where's the lady? Find it there. You can't see anything. And that's the way he does it. It's kind of like a magic trick. As usual, my fellow podcasters have their own unique take on the Boris Johnson story. So let's head straight over to Nicola Talent and see what she's got to say on the whole thing. I'm Nicola Talent. In this week's Sunday World, I chart the rise of the kingpin of the UK criminal underworld, the man known only as Boris the Piglet Johnson. 
Although the piglet operates in plain sight, running his criminal cartel, authorities have found it almost impossible to apprehend and bring the piglet to justice. A serial offender, like many brazen criminal masterminds before him, the piglet appears in public nearly every night, taunting the authorities. But beneath the dishevelled, bumbling, clown-like appearance, there lurks a cold, calculating psychopath, determined to destroy a country. Although the piglet talks incessantly, he manages to say nothing at all. And while giving directions to his criminal lieutenants involved in the psychopathic gang known as the Tories, he gives out the instructions daily and publicly in chilling code. Codes like, let's get the job done, and it's time to level up. At night, the piglet is known to throw wild, lavish parties at the public's expense, champagne, gin and wine flowing endlessly, while next day the piglet himself denies he was ever there. Where will the piglet strike next, this week, in the Sunday world? And of course, my guilty pleasure, what do Vogue and Joanne think of the whole Boris Johnson thing? Hey Joanne! Yeah? What do you think of the whole Boris Johnson thing? Fair fucks to him. What? The guy knows how to party, Vogie. No, come on, Joanne. Sucking down them fat frogs while riding the country at the same time. The guy is a ledge bag, IMO. Oh. I totally ride him. Joanne, you can't say stuff like that. He's fucking crack central, Vogue. Every picture I see, he's hammered. Never a dull moment. Look, Drowning Street. Do you hear me? Drowning Street. (laughs) Drowning Street. It's more like fucking Drowning Street. They're drowning in their own puke in there. It's so fucking brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine 4am in there, ringing up foreign leaders. Absolutely balubas. Here, France. Shut up and get them into you, will you? Oh, I love that. the whole tussled hair as well. I love a bad boy. No, don't talk Big about it. Big filthy dad bodding him. Big belly hanging out, banging in the B-52s at the same time. Whoop, whoop. He's an animal. I'd say he's down for a bit of dressing up as well, would you, Vogie? Joanne, he's the prime Here, minister. Here, Bobo, stick on that high-vis vest and turn around and I'll give you one. Stop. <laughs> and he's there shouting, come on, Joanne, let's take back control. Oh, <laughs> I totally can't unsee that. <laughs> Uh, And no doubt we'll be coming back to this one in the near future. God knows what Bojo will do next. But as it happens, Bojo and Brexit come up quite extensively in my chat with David McWilliams. As you might expect, because Brexit is just one of those things, isn't it? One of those crazy things that have happened in the world and the global economy over the last few years. And who better to talk about what this means for you, for me, for us and our wallets than the man who can break it all down into the simplest of terms, replete with catchy metaphors and analogies, laser sharp soundbites, David and I sat down just the other day in the studio and I got straight into it with him by asking what the hell is going on in the world right now and how can we solve it? We tried to solve the world. This week, somebody's telling you on, on, in the newspapers and in the radio that we are facing potentially a global economic catastrophe. Now, I know there's always something. There's always something, there's always something. Trump, COVID, Ukraine. There's yeah. always something. But now we're hearing... A global economic mon- catastrophe. And that was before somebody thought of monkeypox, right? I know. I, mean, I, know, I, I don't get it all. A global economic catastrophe. And I think somebody said, well, you know, uh, some expert came on and talked about COVID, the aftermath of COVID, Ukraine, um, inflation and climate. And it's a global, it's, a, it's like a perfect storm. Yeah. What's going on? What's going in on? In the world. Mario, what's going on yeah. in the world? Tell okay. me, fix the, solve the world. Fix it all. Yeah. No, no, no. What, like, okay. What is going on is, the, the first thing is, go back to COVID. So the Chinese have decided that they're going to go all New Zealand and have a zero COVID policy. Now, we had that for about a year and a half. Yeah. And what that actually means is nobody goes out. 
And when nobody goes out in a country like China, let's start in China, which is 17% of the world economy, so that's almost a fifth of everything that is made and everything that's consumed in the world is in China. Yeah. Right. So if they decide to put their economy to sleep and say, we want zero COVID. You're basically saying the, the, the world economy is slowing down. But you're taking, you're taking a fifth of the world economy mm. and you're putting it into a cold storage and you're saying, you just park yourselves there. Mm. Now, when that happens, everything has a dramatic, it has a dramatic knock-on effect on everything. Yeah. Because if you look, like your phone just went there. Mm. That's made in China. Mm. Right? All the parts are made in China. Mm. Okay. The earplugs made in China. Mm. So basically all those things that we regard, I'd say most of the stuff in this studio is made in China. Now, why is it made in China, by the way? Sorry, because, a massive question. No, it's, I'm very, sorry. it's a very good why question. Is, everybody says that this is made in China. Why is everything made in China? Well, the amazing thing is if we were Americans uh, of, of our general vintage and we can remember the 80s, right? In America, everything was made in America in the 80s. Everything, right? In America, everything was made yeah. in America. Yeah. So the Americans mm. decided in the late 1980s that what they would do is they would, what they call offshore their manufacturing industry. What they realized, okay, China's opening up. It costs nothing okay. to employ Chinese workers. Tiny labor costs. What we're going to do is we're going to shift all that stuff that we can shift to China. So what you can shift to China is basically everything that's manufactured. Everything is basic manufactured. So you see very, very quickly the American car industry disappears, okay, completely. It goes to Asia. You see all various different parts of the American intermediate industry goes to mm. China. Okay. You see Apple go to China, etc. So basically the idea was the Americans changed their economy from being an economy that made stuff yeah. to an economy that talked about stuff. Mm. Services industries, advertising, mm. our game, radio, mm. media, mm. all that sort of stuff. So therefore that's why everything that we feel and touch is made in China mm. or some part of Asia. Mm. So if they put themselves to sleep, gotcha. suddenly there's a massive problem because everything that's made there, yep. right? And consequently, there's a knock-on effect on yeah. all supply. That's the first thing. The second thing is because stuff that's made in China is cheaper, mm -hmm. if the stuff that's made in China isn't coming in, okay. prices rise everywhere. All right. right? Okay. All right. So that's a that's, cause of inflation so as well. Yeah. Then the second thing is prices are rising in America as a result of this and other stuff, okay? Mm. Okay, which is... Quite interesting, a lot of Americans are choosing not to go back to work, which is mm. a very bizarre in a country that's so unequal. Mm. Because you would imagine that people have to go back to work in America, mm. but a big chunk of 50-somethings and 60-somethings have kind of had it in the States with working. And they've stepped out of the labor market. Mm. So they're not making themselves available for work. Mm. So what that means is as the economy in America has been flying along since COVID, mm. employers have to bid up prices. They've got to go, if you're, if you're looking for waiters or waitresses, mm. or you're looking for anything, you've got to charge, you've got to actually pay more. Yeah. That's pushing up inflation. Mm. So the Yanks then, a guy called Powell, who's the head of the Fed, yeah. said, look, we cannot tolerate high levels of inflation. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually crush inflation by precipitating a recession by increasing interest rates. Okay. okay. So just explain so, very, very briefly, how does increasing interest rates help inflation? So it, well, what it does is that increasing interest rates does two things. One is if, if you're listening to the program and you're, you're thinking, okay, I have money on deposit mm. 
and interest rates rise. You leave money on deposit. Leave money on yeah. deposit, right? So that that money comes out of the system. If you're thinking of actually buying something like buying a house, a mortgage, mm-hmm. and interest rates rise, you say, well, maybe not. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what that does is it takes that demand out of the system. Okay. And as that demand comes out of the system, people buy less. Yeah. People Inflation spend down. less. So it's like a dampener. It's like a dampener. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's called mm-hmm. you know in the words of it's called automatic stabilizers yeah. in economics. Very it's good. a dampener. Mm-hmm. So that's the one thing. Then what's happening in Europe is we have this, what, what you could call Putinflation. Inflation mm. <laughs> hey, there's the first one. There's I love it. Yeah, it's inflation that it's comes a David McWilliamsism. It's a inflation that a comes Putinflation. from Putinflation. Putinflation, right? It's, Putinflation. It's inflation that comes from Because Putin. the last time I did you on the radio, oh, no. I, I last time I did, it was, I think it was about two months ago, and I was like, Ian, economies <laughs> are like fringes. Some go up. Some go down. Mine is floppy. My, I'm a flop anonymy. Well, there you got put inflation. Put inflation. Right? So what you have is inflation that comes from Putin, which is inflation that is coming from energy prices. I'd be so. I would be so chuffed if a an economic term was named after me. <laughs> a Rosenstock rate. Rosenstock rate. Exactly. 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 A Rosenstock market. A Rosenstock market. <laughs> Again, ah, bang! It's, it's easy. easy. It's easy for it's you. It's easy peasy. It's anyway. <laughs> like a talk. Anyway, anyway yeah, so no, I'm making all sense. That making stuff, sense. All that stuff is happening, right? Yep. And then the final bit that's happening is you have all these countries which are called emerging markets, which are developing countries. And over the last six, maybe eight years, they've borrowed a hell of a lot of dollars, right? For infrastructure, for building bridges, for building roads, all that sort of stuff, right? Now they have to pay those dollars back. And what is happening is one, the American dollar is rising, American interest rates are rising. Mm. So it means that for every dollar they've got to pay back, they've now got to produce more of their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the basket of goods that they have to produce in order to pay back okay. the money they borrowed from the Americans is increasing. Okay, so I would just extend the question further. I mean, one of the, the areas that you're involved in is prognostication, prediction, looking forward. I mean, yeah. economics is notoriously hard to predict, but you guys get involved in that. That's what you do. So are you in a position to be able to speculate even? Are we in a potentially very bad area in in, in <laughs> terms of... Thing. A thing. Very bad thing. thing. Are we a facing bad a bad thing? thing? Very, very bad thing. <laughs> well, interestingly, interestingly, there is a very bizarre thing that goes on in Ireland that... This economy, for a variety of unusual I'm talking globally now. Yeah, yeah, yeah globally, yeah. I think things will slow down. I mean, mm. not slow down. Look, the Americans need to force a recession upon themselves if they want to get inflation down. Mm. And the Federal Reserve gets all very macho about this mm-hmm. and seems to think that it doesn't really matter who's in power, that they're independent, etc. So that may well happen in the States. And once that happens in the States, all bets are off, Okay. The Chinese issue, you know, how long does it take to get to zero COVID? I don't know. You ask the New Zealanders, they'll say, we thought we had it sussed, and then it came back to get us mm. a year or two later. So if the Chinese go for this as an indefinite policy, what you're actually what they're actually saying is that we are going to subjugate entirely the economy to this yeah. disease. So you're saying some of it depends on whether they will continue with this yeah, policy. Yeah, and I don't I don't think they will. All right. Long term, right? And what about the so called breadbasket of the world, Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and grain and maize and barley and all this sort of stuff? Which which it is. And yeah. and, and again what we forget, and if you look at the figures, they, I was in Istanbul last week and I was doing an event mm. and I was staying in a hotel which was look looking over the Bosphorus, which is kind of amazing. You know, this this little sliver yeah. of almost like a it was like a stream between the Black Sea That's and the Marmaris right. and the Mediterranean. Yeah. 
And what you see is this constant, constant traffic of enormous tankers between Ukraine and Russia and further afield, you know, uh, into Georgia and whatever. And the Russians are still trading through the Bosphorus. And clearly what's going through there is wheat, but not half as much as mm. before. I'm looking at the figures. Apparently, again, a fifth of all the wheat of the world is produced in either Russia or Ukraine. And where you see that's the dilemma there is for countries like Egypt, Lebanon, all these yes. countries that depend North on... North Africa. And they depend on imported grain. Yeah. And the amazing thing is if you look at the Arab Spring, the mm. Arab Spring was preceded by eight months of very, very high wheat prices. So basically what happens in, in poor countries is poor people in poor countries spend a much higher percentage of their income on basic things like food, mm. which stands to reason if you're only earning X amount mm. and your food bill goes up, whereas rich people don't really feel mm. food prices at all. Mm. And therefore rich countries don't feel it in the same way, mm. or at least rich people in rich countries. Mm. So what always happens is poor people in rich countries feel the increase in food prices much yeah. more dramatically and poor countries full stop feel it. Yeah. So you've got that whole swathe of North Africa, that whole swathe that's dependent on wheat imports yeah. for basics, for bread. Okay. And bread is the kind of wheat and grain is the foundational yeah. source of yeah. all food. I'm just listening to you doing what you do there. You, this is what you do. Yeah. You just, you're off. There you are. <laughs> off you go. And and then you just, you're in a train of thought and off you go. Do you, do, like, can you answer this question? Do you, do you, do you love economics? And yeah, have, it's great. Yeah, it's the way you express yourself, your view of the world. One of the ways you express your view yeah, of the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, I was blessed when I didn't get enough points in my leaving cert to be a lawyer. God, you were very similar to me. That's what happened. I went to school. And you were one of those, me no, like me. I was one fella. point short on the law. And, and then I said, oh, thanks, buddy, Jesus. Yeah. My wife is a recovering lawyer <laughs> and it's taken her years to get over it. It's like a 12 st step, it's like, it's like AA. Yeah. It's been ages and now she runs a book festival and she's, that's brilliant because yeah. she always wanted to yes, be. Yes, yes. Into, so, into, so into you were literature. denied the law as well and it sent you into this I area I was into and economics you and I thought, I thought, geez. And then after about, well actually I did, I did what, what used to be called ESS, which is called BESS now in Trinity. I did it. Oh, there you go. And I, I walked in the first day and started teaching me accountancy. Yeah. And I said to myself, I didn't come to university to be an accountant. I knew that. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it add up. Yeah. I could never make the things balanced. So I said, okay, yeah. that's not for me. And then there was this thing called economics and I'd done it in school. Yeah. Never really got into it in school. Just thought, okay, I'll do it for the leaving cert. Fine. Yeah. Okay. But in college, I got into it and I thought, wow, this gives you a way of seeing the world. Mm. It kind of gives you a framework to, to see the world. Exactly. And it gives you a sort of a gives you building blocks that things begin to make sense yeah. and those dots join with those that's dots right. and, and that's and that and and ever since then I kind of loved it yeah. I think it's endlessly fascinating and I think it if if you know if you if you're lucky enough to have good teachers yeah it can be amazing mm. but, but unfortunately a, a lot of it is as you said they don't give you this big picture they they give you graphs and charts yeah. and and they kind of Bully, unfortunately, I think a lot of undergraduate economics bullies people with math mathematics. Yeah. And so a lot of people drop out. Yeah. They say, oh, geez, I couldn't be honest with that. I couldn't be, I don't get that. It's too hard. And then you realize that that's just a smokescreen, I think, to make something that's not that difficult mm. terribly, appear terribly difficult, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I always think that, you know, things that are complicated are rarely important. Yeah. And things that are important yeah. are actually rarely complicated. Yeah. And if you keep to that, then I think yeah. economics makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
And here's another one I want to I want you to answer because, but briefly, if you can. But but in your best, David McWilliams, is Brexit an awful idea? Has it been an awful idea? Um, has it been an awful idea? One for Britain, two for Ireland, three for the world. Is there are there any redeeming features? Is it a bunch of shit? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can. The funniest thing is having lived in England for a while, and I can understand why lots of English people. <clears throat> Because they are fed such a diet of sort of soft and quite hard nationalism all the time. I m- remember when I first went to live in England, I had, n- I had no real sense that English people or the English didn't like the French. I had no real sense of this uh, animosity. And I remember working in a bank in the city and everything that came up about the French is, oh, frogs, you know, this, that and the other. And that sense of them being put upon was real. But it comes from the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, right? That they're in a constant battle with this fictitious enemy. I also think the Brits are terrorised by nostalgia. The great thing about Ireland is it was so shite in the past mm. that we've no nostalgia, mm. right? That we actually, the past is not a place Irish mm. people want to go and back to. they had to. their glorious empire. They had an empire. They had a sense that they are losing something. There mm. a sense that there was a time when their parents or grandparents were along that Britain was a more important country. And they beat the Germans. And they beat the Germans. Whereas for us, the past was an awful place mm. on every metric. Mm. Okay. Mm. Moral, religious, social, yeah. economic, political, etc. Yeah. Right. So the future is so ours and Irish, the past is theirs. Irish people are much more modern, like we're more like a modernist mm. nation, I always think, mm. that we actually embrace the future much more. Yeah. But if you are trapped in the tyranny of, of nostalgia, then you need to create these little almost almost these little storms, these little fires to remind you that you were once brilliant. And I think Brexit's part of that. It's a ridiculous idea from an economic perspective. Like is really, it, is really it, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. That, is it really but ridiculous? The vast majority of, uh, if you think of all trade negotiations over the last yeah. hundred years, they've always involved countries going into trade negotiations to negotiate tariffs downwards. The Brits, the last one, they went into a trade negotiation to negotiate tariffs upwards. Yeah, somebody said they started a trade war with themselves. With themselves, exactly. <laughs> and I've always felt that the argument now in the UK isn't the UK versus Europe, it's bits of the UK versus itself. Yes. And so you've got various different nationalisms emerging. I'm not too sure what's going to happen, but it certainly is the idea of the British nation state with Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. That seems to me, that will be the medium term casualty yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. And and it's, it's, it's very, very obvious the way things are going. Yes. So I think for the, for the British... For Britain, it was a bizarre idea. For certain parts of England, I think it makes complete sense for them in that nostalgic way. Yes. Economically, it makes no sense. And it's delivered them maybe the most buffoonish prime minister that we've ever seen. Yes. And he has to keep the gig going. So this idea that uh, Johnson wants to get Brexit done mm-hmm. is a nonsense. He, he wants to have this idea that, you know, it's... It's Bregg's eternity. It wants he wants it to go on for an eternity. You've done another one. No, no, I think that. I You've think done that, another. No, no, I'm sure I read that somewhere. Right? You, okay, okay. I'm sure I read that. Somewhere. But <clears throat> that idea that he knows that he can win an election on Brexit because he can stoke nationalism, he can give those people in the Midlands and the North of England a reason to explain why they're going backwards economically, which is we are at some sort of bizarre war with the European Union. Just a question for you there. How do you explain to somebody, if you're if you're Boris the buffoon, for example, that when things are going palpably wrong, so for example, I heard today on the, I was listening to, um, I was listening to the economics report, I think on, on, on the Today programme, and they were saying that um, the inflation levels in the UK are the highest in the G7 at the moment. 
Yes. Um, it's fair to say trade has been choked a bit by the delays and, you know, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. They are ostracized from the EU. They're talking about, you know, the EU potentially starting a trade war with the EU. How can you explain to your people that it's never been better when it's clearly never been worse? Well, yeah. these are the guys who I, I wasn't yeah. at the party. Exactly. And then there's exactly. a photo today, I think, in the yeah. guards in the yeah. front. He's gargling his head off yes. at the party. Yes. So this is a born, I mean, he's obviously the guy is, has got a very bizarre relationship with the truth. That's the first thing. But the second thing is the way in which you explain to your people that things have never been better is that you constantly say that we're on a sort of a war footing. And the reason things are might not be as good as they could possibly be is because of those baddies over there. So what we're going to do is we're going to blame the baddies over there and we're going to sail on regardless. We're mm-hmm. going to put someone like Rees Moggs they now have in the job of the official finder of good things about Brexiter. You know, that's he's got. He's been told he about another, find an, he, good things. He, there's, an, there's another official uh, ascription to his title: the finder of good things about Brexit and efficiencies. And efficiencies. <laughs> I mean, it's it's <laughs> that word. The, yeah, the word efficiencies but, is I mean, in his title. Just, we just have to move on from Britain as a country, yeah. as, as an economy, as a society. Like what has been amazing over the last fifty years, when Winston Churchill was last in power, it was 1951. Briefly, 92 percent of all Irish exports went to Britain. Mm. That figure is now 11%. Yes. So we have diversified from Britain. But if you look at the flip side, in 1951, we were Britain's fifth largest trade partner. We still are. Yes. So they've not diversified from us. We've diversified from them. I'm interested in what you say. And and, and actually, uh, I'm interested in what you say about regarding Ireland as... as, uh, the, the 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 expression you chose to use, which was that, that it was a modernist country, and I think that, we are, and that we were embracing, yeah, and, and that 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 goes against some of the, let's say, mainline mainline thought that we're used to in Ireland for the last fifty years. Now yeah. I'm going back quite far now, yeah. But the Ireland, the idea that Ireland is a shithole, the idea that only in Ireland, remember that, yeah, yeah, the idea yeah. like we, you know, our politicians are the worst, <laughs> yeah. Our organisers are the worst. We'd fuck everything up. If yeah. We're paddies. We're gobshitery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Irish version of, you know, like, you know, yeah. you two were an Irish version of Simple Minds. Uh, no, they weren't. Yeah. They were probably but, a lot better. But we're... Right? But, but, we, we, but deep down, you know, but deep the, down, yeah. But yeah. That we're regarded as a joke. And I, think, and I think it's an interesting... Well, there's a self-loathing yeah. in Irish, in the Irish commentariat of a certain generation. Yes. Maybe not our generation, maybe the generation before And I think you're us. right. I don't think in our generation. And there, there is a self-loathing and it's a... Uh, it's not in our generation. And it's, I don't think it's particularly in the generation coming after us. But the generation before us, I think, lived on a diet, some justifiable, of this place being awful. I mean, you know. Oh, don't, please. We can, we can do all that. But, no. but I do think that this idea of modernity is interesting. So I've been fascinated as to why certain countries have done very well in globalization and other countries haven't. So take, for example, Britain. Why do you think Britain has done not as well in globalization or the United States? Why do you think the left behinds became an issue in large countries, in France in the last election. And that intrigues me that globalization, for all its ails and all its uh, its warts and people can complain about it, gives small countries the opportunity for the first time ever to wriggle away from the tyranny of size and geography. And I think this is really important. So large countries, Russia being the prime example, have simply not been able to adapt to the insane and intense complexity 
of people moving, of capital moving, of goods moving, all that sort of things. Small countries who have always been kicked around have actually done extremely well mm. in, in globalization. And that's during the last 40 years. And that's intrigued me. And is, is it a mental thing? Is it a physical thing? Is it a psychological thing? And what strikes me is that the commentary about Ireland being the worst place in the world was a function of decolonization, of having a certain, there's, there's a great exper- expression of you should never let the perfect bully the good. Yeah. Right. So if you have a notion of perfection and you're ideologically, let's say, you subscribe to a certain set of rules and certain set of values, right? Then even the good is never perfect. So you criticize it. So the gradual process by which Ireland became better, which happened year in, year out, year in, year out, over a 30 year period, you were blind to mm. because you were in some way beholden to a notion of perfection. And I think that's a, that for, yeah. for, for, for people who comment on the world like you and I do, mm. that's, a, that's a big risk. And the other thing is, I also think that economics is a function of the society. And by that, I mean that as the society becomes more open, more liberal, more tolerant, what we tend to focus on is moral sexual self-expression, for example. So that if you were gay in the past, you had to leave. We've got gay friends of some you and I of our generation who left, right? They never came back, mm-hmm. right? Because Ireland was a cold place for them. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we focus a lot on like sexual self-expression, right? But I think commercial self-expression is something as interesting, mm-hmm. which is the following, that to actually create companies, I think is an incredibly courageous act. Mm-hmm. And it's actually like coming out in a way because mm-hmm. you're self-expression, you're saying, yeah. this is me, mm-hmm. I'm going mm-hmm. to back myself. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a relationship between economic vibrancy and social and moral tolerance. And I really believe this. Mm. And you see it in every country. You go back to the Dutch Republic of the 16th century. When the society relinquishes itself of dogma, all sorts of things flower. Mm. And all sorts of flowers that wouldn't have flowered Mm. in the previous dogmatic age flower. And it's because what you're saying to people is, have a go, back yourself. So if you look at Ireland in the last 20, 25 years, one of the most fascinating things, I think, has been this coincidence of dogma and the Catholic Church and all that sort of ridiculously oppressive moral and a commercial dynamism. Yeah. Mm. And it's no, doesn't, you know, that's why I always think all this stuff about, you know, Lamas and Whittaker is all nonsense. Mm. But they all say, oh, it was Lamas and Whittaker. And when they Mm. came in, they wrote a book. That's that's Mm. what I call the big man in history approach, Mm. right? It didn't matter what their policies were. If at the core, people were suppressed Mm. in terms of this is your lane and stay in it. Mm. And we will dictate to you how you live morally. Yeah. That spills over into commercial self-expression and lots and lots. I think the people who make the economy work are dissenters, are by nature dissenters. And they're quite courageous, but they tend not to be very good rule takers. Yeah. Right. That's that's. And so if you have a society that's obsessed by rules, those people just they just fuck off. Stay in, yeah. They leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they stay in their lane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? So you don't get that vibrancy, that yeah, correct. enthusiasm. Well mm. And I really That's believe, lovely. and I think that, so when we look at society, when I look at economics, I don't think about graphs and, and, mm. and I don't even think about trucks and bridges mm. and investment. Mm. I think about people. Mm. And if you think there's a lovely expression about what happens when countries change and there is... An Indian 
ex- economist called, I can never get his first name, Aramita Sen. He won the Nobel Prize for And he talks about little mutinies going off in people's heads. Right. And I think that's what happened here. That, you know, I remember in our road in Monkstown, you know, you could see the process whereby the little mutinies were happening in, in mothers' heads and dads' heads and older brothers, older sisters. And they were saying, no, no, we're going to change ourselves. And those little mutinies against dogma are the elixir of economics. Yeah. Okay. At the same time, though, David, so with the with the relinquishment of moral suppression and commercial dynamism coinciding with each other, which yeah. is a great point and well taken. There's also something else happened, and that is we're leaving, we're in danger of leaving behind one, two, three generations, basically houseless. Well, that's, look, that's, 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 this is, a, it, this is easy to fix, right? Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is, this is a very frustrating. Go on then. Okay, so Ireland is the leastly dense populated country in Western Europe, yep. with the exception of Norway. Yep. And we have the highest land prices, right? So let's go back to basic economics. That means there's a scam here, yeah. right? Okay, because you cannot have that. So what it means is that, and I've, I've, I remember doing the late, late years ago or prime time and saying the Irish property market was a scam in 2003 and four. It still is a scam. And so, and it's a scam in the following way, that we don't have any deficit of land here. Okay. We just don't have it. Yeah. Right. What we have is a deficit of imagination. And what we have done over, maybe since the foundation of the state, we have favoured the interests of landlords over the interests of workers. And now I'm beginning to sound like a Marxist, but you have to start with Marx. So basically, if you look at every single budget in Ireland over many, many years, maybe not every single, but certainly the vast majority, what you'll see is there's been a genuflection to the interests of landowners all the time. A tax break for this, a tax break for that, right? We have also got incredibly restrictive planning laws incredibly restrictive. So you look around Dublin, and Dublin isn't a two-storey city or a three-storey city or four-storey, as people might like to think. Large parts of Dublin are a one-storey city, right? You cannot have a modern urban life with this sort of obsession with low density, right? And the third thing is, and, and this is an important thing, is that in about 2011, when this country ran out of money and we had no money, the government came up with a couple of tax breaks for large institutions to come in. And that has skewed the property market. And this is your your rent to buy stuff that people are really angry about. Mm. Rightly to be angry about it, but ultimately you cannot solve a housing problem with less houses. You solve a housing problem with more homes. And those homes have to come in a variety of areas. And I understand completely why people are angry about buy to rent. But there are also, on the flip side, many, many people who are happy to rent if they could, right? Because they have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, you started renting. I started renting. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't go and buy houses in 22. We went into bed sits, Mm -hmm. right? And we did that for most of our 20s, right? So I think it's important to extract ideology from this discussion. And when I'm saying, and say, look, that person's earning much more, that person's benefiting hugely, and that's a foreign fund, right? If that's the problem, change the rules, Mm. right? Change the rules. But ultimately what we have to do is realize that land is a bizarre commodity because it can be hoarded. Mm. Most other things can't be hoarded. Mm. So if you try to hoard, for example, perishable goods for Mm. a couple of Mm. days, Mm. they'll go off, Mm. right? Land has, has to be therefore taxed. So in the sense that 
If you own a building and you don't use it, you should be taxed. And I actually think that's a form of delinquency, right? That land is a resource that needs to be used. Ironically, the way in which you use it is you tax it more, not less. So you make the opportunity cost of doing nothing. Mm. Like we're here on Dawson Street, mm. right? There is dereliction on this street. Mm. Is there? This is the this is the central. These are the main streets. There, there are places that are not being used. You look upstairs. Mm. You look at most of the upstairs yeah. here. Mm. There's True. no flats. True. Right. So you have to penalise people for bad behaviour, yeah. which is actually hoarding land and not making it available, yeah. and reward people for good behaviour, which is doing up places. Yeah. These are. I mean, when I say it can be fixed, it can be fixed so easily. Yeah. But the reason I don't think it's been fixed is there is a bias towards landowners. And is that an ideological I think it's hangover? I, I think it's I, th- I think it is. Sounds I think, like a Fine Gael hangover. Well, mm. you know, Fine Gael, Fina Fall. Doesn't matter kind of, really. They blur into yeah. in, into one and look and we know that, you know, that the, the voters, the richest voters in, in Ireland grow both green and Labour. Yeah. So the Labour Party get the richest voters. Yeah. I mean so Ireland is weird in that way, you know? Um you were saying you mentioned Marxist there. Um has has your kind of economic or political uh, where where you would stand in in the spectrum changed over the years? So, for example, I'll, I'll tell you where I am. For example, so I've always regarded myself as uh, they, they, that stupid expression that when you're a youngster you should be a or the socialists at twenty and the capitalists at forty. Or something yeah, like that. I yeah. find myself going the other way. It's funnily enough, maybe it's because I work in comedy and satire. And really, but, but but I find that when I was younger, I was actually more of a Michael J. Fox. In, 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 Were you? I was. I was kind of, greed is good. Come on, get out there and make money. I'm going to be a millionaire. And then the older I've got, I was going, no, 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 we need to protect yeah. the weak. It's the idea that when we're walking down the street in Ireland and across the road from me, I see a man fall on the ground and he has an accident and he hurts his leg. He breaks his leg and he screams and he's in pain. I want to know, without going over to that man, that an ambulance will be there in a second and that there will be people there to help him and that he will be brought to hospital and that he will be fixed. By who? By me. Yes. Because I will pay for it. Yeah. And if something happens to me, he will pay for it. Me and him need never meet in our lives, yet he will be my brother. This will lead to all sorts of improvements in, in civil unrest, that there won't be as much unhappiness, that people will be able to look at each other across the room and go, are we? Because yeah. they kind of know we're in it together. As a country, uh, it's funny. I, I read a really interesting statistic, and it's probably very reveals a lot. Was in Sweden it has the highest percentage of women who suggest that they feel safe on the street at night. Okay, and I thought that's incredibly revealing because that encapsulates so much more than GDP and blah blah blah. Because it's actually it's back to this point about we're all part of one society. I've always felt that civilized societies are societies that actively try and reduce inequality. So, you know, one thing that always struck me about the difference, there's a lot of difference between people who are reasonably well off and people who are poor. But one of the main differences is that poverty obliterates the future. And by that, I mean that one of the ways in which middle class people like myself see the world as we see the world in the future. So we plan. Mm. You and I went to university. We could postpone working because somebody said you'll be better off not working and going to college. We could actually say, okay, if I do this in three years time, this will happen in four years time. So that urgency, that immediacy of needing cash is not always there Mm. with our class, Mm. right? Okay. If you're much poorer, 
you need cash today. Mm. So you cannot plan. Mm. So you cannot invest in yourself. Mm. So you can't say, if I do this in four years' times, I will, this, I'll get my reward. So suddenly you have a difference between people for whom the future is real, us, and for people for whom the future doesn't exist, right? And I've always thought, well, how do you actually then migrate the, those people onto us? And, and what you do is you do it from education, you do it from our taxes going to them. That's very simple. Our money has to go to people who have less money than us. But our taxes, we're and already, but I guess one of the answers to that is we already have high taxes in we this already country have high and taxes. it's not going to them. We already have high taxes. Well, it actually it is. This is the yeah. interesting thing. So again, if you look at the Irish tax system, and this comes back to this, the Irish tax system is the, and welfare system is the one that works hardest in Europe to rebalance original inequalities. So if we, if we didn't have a tax and welfare system, right, we would be the mo- one of the most unequal countries in Europe, right? Because we have a tax and welfare system, we are about on average, right? We're about in the middle of the European average in terms of income. But I come back to this, the big problem in Ireland is wealth inequality. So if you are part of the 10% in Ireland, you own over 60% of all the assets in the country. And amazingly, the bottom 10% in Ireland own nothing. They own less than nothing because they're in debt. Right, so that we have to change completely. Now you said that you migrated from a Michael J. Fox preacher mm, mm. to uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, mm. uh, <laughs> uh, and I've the funniest thing is I, I've 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 never really been that ideological, in the sense that I never really you know it's funny as I get older you meet people who were let's say in university. And they say, well, you know, you weren't political in university. And I said, no, no, I wasn't at all. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I never, I was never a political animal. I was maybe, maybe much shyer, didn't really want to get involved in it. Um, but I think it's very, very clear that if you look at human history, the best place ever to have been born is to be born in Western Europe in the last 25 years. These people, right? basically younger people here. This is the best society to have ever been born on every metric. Not this, Northwestern Europe. And there is no coincidence. In fact, Northwestern Europe is the one that believes in the welfare state. So you don't, like in the United States, have some guy coming in and saying, your, 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 country, your, your, your uh, credit card is maxed yeah. out. And then, of course, the Americans believe that because they have this tooth and claw capitalism, that in some way it gives people the opportunity to move up. But all the evidence is the opposite that American social mobility is actually worse than European. And the reasons the following is that if you are born at the bottom in America, or even close to the bottom, you have no hope of moving up. Why? Because you are trapped in poverty, you can't see the future, so you're going from one shitty job to another shitty job, and you live on the margins. Correct. And that doesn't happen. Well, as somebody very, very, somebody pointed out very aptly, um, why is the American dream called the American dream? It's because everybody's fucking asleep. <laughs> so, but I, I, but the interesting thing is, I don't think when we were younger, the chances of Europe embracing that sort of Reaganism, Thatcherism was much, much higher than it is now. Mm. I mean, I, I look again when I was younger. Yeah, trickle down doesn't happen. It doesn't, it doesn't work. But I, I, but even even in a cultural sense, when I, when I was younger, let's say I was my kid's age, I went to the States to work. And some part of me thought, yeah, American. Yeah, America's cool. There's lots going on there. There's culture, there's music, there's art, there's blah, blah, blah. I want to go there. There's that ridiculous idea, freedom, right? I asked my kids about America. They have no interest at all. 
For them, America doesn't exist. And if it does, it's Trump, it's racists, it's now anti-abortion, it's everything that they regard as an anathema to them. Mm. And that's a phenomenal you shift. flip over yeah, over a 30-year period. It is. It and really and, and, and it, it ties in with the modernism that's happened in this part of the world, yeah. especially in Ireland. Very, very interesting. Um, you've been in Davos. A Davos is I on have this been week. in Davos, yes. I'm just wondering, fly on the, fly on the wall. It's bizarre. Being in those rooms. seeing. Have you been in the room with Bezos or any of these guys or any of the multi-billionaire oh. dude? I found this fascinating a couple of years ago when Rutger Berg, Bregman... When he just turned up and said, talk about taxes. Yeah, so Rutger, for people who don't know out there, Rutger Bregman is a Dutch... Um, um, historian, stroke, politic, political scientist, and a really good writer, and a really good writer, and he went viral a few years ago in, in in Davos because he turned up in front of all the billionaires and they went, "Mr. Bregman, what do you have to say?" And he went, "You know, I think this is all very interesting here that we're here in this Dutch action." And he went, "We're not talking about the elephant in the room." Yeah, and they went, "Taxish." Yeah. And everybody went, <clears throat> I don't think we want to talk about taxes. We're philanthropy. It's yeah. much nicer. Philanthropists. Yeah, we want yeah, to talk about yeah. giving money to the poor. No, no, no. Taxish. Taxish, taxish, taxish. It was a very odd. Uh, about, I don't know, it was 15 years ago or something, uh, I got a, a letter through the letterbox and it was with a big Swiss uh, sign on it called Helvetia. I always remember they had the thing. And it said, uh, this is the World Economic Forum, Mr. McWilliams. You have won this accolade. You're, we've, you've, we've nominated you a world, a young global leader. And I'm, as, my, as, as my family says, you were neither young nor global, nor you don't show any leadership at home. So I, and they said, would you like to come to Davos to collect your award? So I said, fine. And I went. And but the bizarre thing was that I had not been told. So basically they said, we, they said we'll pay you to come over, but you, you sort out your hotel or whatever. And I'd not been told that, because I'd never been there before, that you have to book a hotel room about a year in advance. So I ended up in a tiny little village called Wiesen, which is about 25 miles in a, it can only be described as kind of a cross between a, a motel and a dorm, and me and a battalion of the Swiss army, right? <laughs> That's my Davos experience. Okay. But it did give you access, this little award did give you, it's part of this accolade, it gave you access to all those those dues, okay. right? Yeah. And uh, the bizarre thing is I didn't go to the Jeff Bezos one. I went to, there was very, there's lots of very odd things there. Uh, I ended up going to an Indian guru whose obsession was how to eat slowly. That's what I went. <laughs> so I, thought, Jesus, I can see Jeff Bezos, but I mean, it is kind of mad. I mean, the, the only thing that amazed me, there was, there's loads of parties at it, right? And what amazed me is the Swiss are very, very exacting about who goes and who doesn't. So you get this little piece, this little pass to get in. And I was queuing up to go into some party, the Google party or something, right? And everyone said, you have to go to the Google party. I said, fine, okay. And I was on my Todd and it's really big. And you didn't, I didn't know anyone there. So mm. it is a bit weird. Uh, but there was a Swiss soldier who probably was bunking down very close to me. <clears> and he was at the door, all armed up the whole thing. Two of them, they were about 19, 20. And they were looking at everybody's passes. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this rather faltering elderly man. And I looked at him again. I said, that's Rupert Murdoch. Oh. Right? <laughs> so I recognized Rupert Murdoch. But the two Swiss guys had no rash as who he was. Yeah. So the, this, the Rupert Murdoch comes in and he says, do you know who I am? And they said, no. We have no idea, but you don't have the badge. And he said, but no, 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 no. I'm, you know, they said, I don't care. And what was beautiful was Rupert had never been said no to. Mm. And the Swiss guys had never said yes to anybody who didn't have a badge. <laughs> it, was a, it was a standoff <laughs> yeah. until there was a kerfuffle. And do you know who this is? 
And I think it was, it, but Rupert Murdoch's face was hilarious. Like yeah. he just, it was like one of those robots that doesn't comprehend. <laughs> yeah. I've never, ever not been let in somewhere before. But it was, I mean, it, it is, it is a strange, strange place. It's fascinating and terrifying in equal measure. Fascinating because you realize this is definitely a very, very powerful club. So that is fascinating. Terrifying for the same reason, right? And if you if you look at, there was, there was another case, I, I remember going to a bar and I was just sitting in the bar and I, it was very unusual. I was kind of becoming aware of lots of very bulky guys around me, which was a bit intimidating. And I was, again, I was on my Todd and I was having a drink and reading the paper or whatever. And I was like, these guys were looking at me and I was thinking, hmm, strange. Okay, what have I done wrong? And then I looked up and the guy sitting beside me having a beer was Ehud Barak, the Prime Minister of Israel. Okay. And they were all Mossad guys all around okay. me. And they were looking as, as I was shuffling in my thing. Yes. What's he taking out here? So, you know, it's very bizarre. Yeah. But uh, I think it's, I think it's time has gone my, myself. I think there's a, I think it, it was of a certain ideological time yeah. of shareholder value and, you know, the mega rich doing whatever they wanted, etc. I, I think that pendulum is swinging against it. I don't think Davos man will see out the next recession. Right. Okay. I really don't. Do you know that it's funny that people who are living in the time that they're living in, in their prime, probably think incorrectly most of the time that we're living in the most important time in history. Is it my ego that's telling me this? Because I'm, I'm in such an egotist that I must believe I'm the centre of the world. Am I living in truly, truly weird and amazing times or not? I think it's, I think it's really odd. If you look at uh, every generation definitely believes that this is the big one that they are living through. But if you look at even recent history, every generation lives through these phenomenal times. And I think it's very interesting one is to look, for example, 2022 and go back 100 years to 1922. Now, 1922 is the year that Ezra Pound, the American poet, said that 1922 is the year that modernity begins. So everything that went before it was an echo of the last uh, century. And that 1920, so he was citing Joyce published Ulysses, Einstein won the Nobel Prize, Freud's clinics were emerging, psychoanalysts all over the world, okay? In technology, there was electricity for the first time, radio for the first time, motor cars for the first time, elevators, right? The whole world, they were also coming out of a pandemic, right? Exactly. That's true. Pandemic. And there was a war in Ukraine, it was the last war of the Soviet civil war, the United, the USSR was incorporated in 1922. The Irish Free State was incorporated in 1922. So when you go back and you look at these periods, you see there's a war in Ukraine, there is a pandemic, there is these huge technological change. And I, I believe bigger than ours. I think electricity and radio are much bigger technologically. Than even in, the internet. Yeah, example. I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. the inter internet was, 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 has definitely changed the world profoundly. Yeah, of course, yeah. These things, so... You know, in, 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 in literature, Joyce is basically breaking up the novel and creating something new. Yeah. Picasso is going through his blue period in, yeah. in art. Einstein is ushering in the nuclear age. This all happened in one year. The BBC actually, the very first broadcast ever in 1922. The reason I'm saying it's the year that our country was born, right, created. We obsess about it, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, yes. We obsess about Michael Collins for yeah. all the right reasons and yeah. Bale and the Blow and all that stuff. Yeah. But the world was going through yeah. as as well argued. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, no, it's a very good point. When you put when you add, Casey would say it was a state of chastity. Right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and they got over it. Yeah. 
That's my point. So even if you if yeah. you pick any date in history, there are pivotal moments. Like Lenin once said, and Vlad Lenin once said, you know, there are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. Yeah, and it feels that we're living through those weeks. Yeah, it does. It does yeah. feel them. Yeah. But a little bit of perspective, a little bit of history suggests that mm, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting, interesting. I, I think there's a sense of ego to it as well. It, yeah, yeah, we're it's, here. It's me. It's yeah, all it's about us. Me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, there's a few people on the line. People listen to this podcast live. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Say hello to Boris Johnson. He's on the line, David. <laughs> Say hello. Boris, how are you? Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated to talk to you. I'm really, really disappointed, David. Really disappointed that you, 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 all you said about Brexiternity. You know, Brexit has been done. You know, it's not going to go on forever. It's been done. No, 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 David, 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 no, no. Let me say one more thing. That there is only room in this world for one blonde spoofer. Okay. No, 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 no. And he's here. He's here. He's raising a glass. He's raising a hipso facto chamba wamba. Let's get drinking done. That's what I say. That's great. Jesus. Well done, Boris. That is good. That is good. Well, thank you. He's listening. Um, David, or sorry, Leo Varadkar's on the line as well. Leo, how are you? I'm very good, uh, David. Um, really enjoying the podcast. Uh, I couldn't over, uh, overhear you there. You were talking about him um, because I got that letter as well from the World Economic Forum. Uh, where they said, do you want to take over the world? And they just gave me the address. And I think I actually passed you on the street. And we kind of gave that signal to each other. It was that handshake. Did you do that thing? The funny one? Yeah, the funny kind of three-fingery one. Yeah, great. And it was like, we were going to take over the world. It was great. So, And it's so, it's so fascinating because we actually have. And, you know, I'm not building any houses. And you're talking about me not building any houses. It's just perfect. Yeah, and we're living in, in you know, what was it John Lennon said? Uh, you know, decades and weeks. Or, uh, or was that Neil Diamond? Or no, it was actually Kylie. Kylie said that. She said we're living decades and weeks. It's spinning around. That's what she said. Uh, <laughs> uh, who else is on the line? Oh, Blind Boy Boat Club is on the line. Blind Boy. Sorry, say hello to Blind Boy. Blind Boy, how are you doing? Hi, David. This is Blind Boy. I believe... I'm doing your talkie book festival. You are? <laughs> this is your chance to plug yourself. Go ahead. Blind Boy, it's talkie book festival. You're starring Saturday night, the 19th, and it goes from the 14th, 5th, 16th to the 19th. That's great. Of June. Now, talkiebookfestival.org. We have a little bit of a problem. How will a man from Limerick? wears a bag over his head go down in doggy with great ease really will they accept me they'll embrace you will they David will they not look at me as a function is this Enya shit in the back that gets me <laughs> will they not look at me as a function of economic inequality David <laughs> um, Eddie Hobbs is on the line say hello to Eddie Eddie hi David how are you? Fine, Eddie. How are you? First of all, say thank you, David. Say thank you. Thank you. Thank, you're welcome. You're welcome for me backing away from the celebrity economist. economist. Okay. Leaving it all to yourself. I had 60% of it. You had 40%. I went away. Now you have the full 95. I know what you're going to say. My numbers are a bit off. But they always have been. Now, David, the second thing I want to alert you to is I know you're a big fan of crypto. So... 
I'm introducing the new hob coin. It's coming out next week. It's already shot up in Russia, out through Crimea, and out through the back door in Turkmenistan. They're going mad for it out there. Johnny Logan even has some. And Enya has bought some as well. <laughs> Sorry, Jim Corr. Jim Corr's on the line. Say hello. Jim, how are you doing? All right, David. It's great to hear your voice, but... There is a new world order being created in Davos, and I would like you to reveal yourself as the lizard you are, the lizard of Dawkey Town. You have revealed yourself as one of the masters of the universe. The cores have known about you all along, and uh, we'd like you to admit that you are, in fact, a lizard. Jim, it's a pleasure. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay, I've got to fly. You're extremely sleazy. <laughs> David, you're not finished yet. David, quick fire, right? I know you don't do go, quick fire. Go, go, go. Yeah, go, go, go. yeah. Is there a recession coming? And if so, when? Uh, probably, but I can't really say. Okay. Buy a house now or wait? Wait. Hmm. Should we invest in crypto or gold? Neither, but definitely avoid crypto like the plague. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a joke, is it? It is a joke. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who will be the next richest person in the world? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe, you know, when I might leave and go on the lecture circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mass Elvin Musk. Musky, musky. Musky Chabawamba. Something good related to football. That was just a note from Patrick. You love football. You're going to play some today. I'm actually, that's why I've run out. I'm, I've got to go to UCD. At this stage, not me really playing. I kind of go in goals and shout around in the back. Yeah, you're a good footballer. You have a dirty, filthy tackle on you as well. Very filthy. You've got to be filthy. Filthy. Oh, Tony Fenton. I remember right. Tony Fenton. We played. Watch, watch out for McWilliams. He's got a filthy tackle. <laughs> and I mean, what about a soccer? Hey, dude, stop cracking the jokes. <laughs> uh, and then you did. You put the boot in, studs up and everything. Got to be camping. Yeah, you still doing that? Around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. <laughs> You're vicious. Exactly. David, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. It was great. Thank Cheers. You. Thank you. That was a quick. Quick. That was a hoot. Quick. quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. My thanks to David McWilliams for a great interview. And actually, we've been trying to get him on the podcast for about a year. So it was great to finally um, synchronize our times together and get him into studio. Don't forget the Dawkey Book Festival is being organized by David and his wife. Great guests. Check it out, dawkeybookfestival.org. Thanks to you for listening. You're the most important element in this podcast. If you do anything, just say to one person, check it out. One person. That's all you need to do. Contact me directly as well. MarioRosenstock at gmail.com. Um, Carlsberg Complaints Department if you have any or advice or uh, any tips or suggestions anything you like see you same time same place next week <laughs>